Today, I'm, I'm really excited to share um, the Word of God with you, and I've really been praying a lot this week into this, and I really pray it helps people. There's nothing worse than spending the next half an hour together and thinking, well, that was a waste of time. But I really hope it helps people, and we're going to preach out of the Word of God, and I think the Word of God helps people. It's really helped me over the years. And, um, but many years ago, I sort of uh, lived a lot of my life out of Monaco City, and I think it's the greatest city in the world and uh, it's great to come into the second best city here this morning, uh, which is awesome for you guys. But uh, for many years, I lived in Alfriston, which is at the back of Manurewa. And as I came back home late one night, I had that uh, sensation where you've probably all been there, where you've turned up and our ranch slider doors were open. This was prior to me being married and I was flatting with a couple of guys and the ranch slider was open and I sort of walked up and my, my uh, yucca plant, which I'd been so much time curating, uh, was gone, and I walk in, and there's muddy footprints everywhere, and the TV was gone, and a whole bunch of other stuff, and the lounge was gone, and, uh, and it was at that point uh, that I said to my flatmate, who's kind of on the phone, I said to him, what happened? And uh, it's a funny question to ask, because it's pretty clear what happened, and he looks at me, sort of, we've been burgled, like, have a look around, man, there's footprints everywhere, it's not hard to be a forensic detective to figure out what's actually happened in your home. And it's that horrible feeling, isn't it, of thinking there was someone else in my house that's taken my stuff. And I came to realize, though, that actually, after one kind of quick call to the insurance company, I realized the stuff was all replaceable. In fact, I got a better TV. I never really replaced the plant because I was a bit lazy, but I should have. But all the stuff was replaceable. All the stuff, I just ran the insurance company. They said, cool, we'll cover it all. And I ended up with better stuff than what I had before, which I kind of thought was pretty funny. And so, um, but the challenge was, is I want to talk about the different kind of stuff, the stuff that's kind of not replaceable. Because I think for many of us, the devil um, comes and does nothing else except to steal and kill and destroy. We love that verse in John 10, 10, but I've come that they may have life and love it to the full. But the first half is we serve a God who loves us, but we also have an enemy that hates us and wants to really render our lives completely ineffective for the kingdom, of which we were designed and uniquely purposed to extend. And so he does nothing except to try and destroy our lives. And it's kind of good for us to understand that this morning. That's all he wants to do. There is no good in him. There is no kind of mid-ground with, with the devil. He wants to render your life and destroy it. And for many people, you might be sitting here this morning and go, yeah, actually, the devil's taken a big chunk of my life. I'm still here. I'm still standing. That's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, 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 I'm still standing. The devil hasn't destroyed me. He's not going to destroy me because I know in whom I serve. But he wants to, he wants to destroy your life and he wants to steal uh, from you. But everything was replaceable. When it's only stuff, everything's replaceable. If you've only had stuff stolen, you'll realize that that's actually the case. But I kind of wish he'd stolen some other things. I wish he'd stolen some bills that were sitting on the desk there. I wish he'd stolen a few extra kilos that I was carrying, right? I wish he'd stolen my friend's attitude problem. Maybe he would have stolen my insecurity. That would have been a good thing for him to steal. These are all the things that I want the devil to steal, but he's like, no, nah, they're the things that I'm not going to steal. None of the things of God I'm going to steal because he really can't take those things away, but he can take a whole bunch of other stuff away from our lives. And so it's not so, though, with David and Ziklag. And, and I know Pastor Sam has talked about this, but I... I love this scripture in so many ways. And, and we kind of read in 1 Samuel 30. Uh, it says, Three days later, when David and his men 
arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They had crushed Ziklag and burnt it to the ground. So they'd crushed the city. Right? This talks of utter devastation, and they'd raised the whole place to the ground. So they carried off all the women and children and everybody else without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. So we read these scriptures like, oh, man, that's terrible. That's so terrible. But again, you've got to, I always put myself in the place of someone like David. If my family was kidnapped today when I went home for lunch, I understand what it would be to weep no more. If my house was burned to the ground, I would probably weep a lot because there are probably special things in the house that actually are irreplaceable. And so there's things about that that I look at this and I go, weeping till you weep no more, like that's a, that's a low place for you to be in. Just crying until you've almost got no tears left. I feel even in the room today, there's people that have cried those kinds of tears where there's nothing left, there's nothing coming out of your eyes anymore because you've wept so much about a situation. And in a room of this size, there's always people that have gone through stuff that know what it is to weep like that. All of their possessions and their loved ones. People aren't replaceable, are they? Jesus is coming back for people. God sent his son Jesus for people so that they would be in relationship with him. People matter to God and they should matter to us. And so, so when we think about verses like the devil is a roaring like a prowling lion, seeking whom he can devour, I imagine it like he's literally at the door, like he, there's, a, there's a dog at the door scurrying, trying to get in. And as soon as you open that door slightly ajar, there the enemy goes and he floods in. And this is kind of the enemy that we're serving. It's kind of good to know that. I don't want to focus too much on the devil because I don't want to give him too much space. But it is good to know we have an adversary and he's real and he destroys a lot of lives. And I think we've kind of got to know that. So this is the devil, this is the God that we serve. I got a question for you this morning that just came to me when we were in praise and worship. And the question is this, is, is what are you not crying over? Like what's something that you're not crying over, but maybe you should be crying over more? When you read the scriptures, are you still, are you weeping because of things like this? Are you weeping because of the fact that, man, Jesus is so good? Are we weeping over the fact that our unsaved friends and family members are going to a Christless eternity? Because mine are currently, as at today, that's the world that I live in. And, I, and it's important for us to recognize that we've got to weep over those things because they're the things that really matter to God. So here's what the enemy wants to do. And I want to tell, illustrate the story. When I was growing up, I used to live in Fiji as a kid. Where's all my Latoka crew? I don't think they're even from Latoka, our crew here, but uh, West is best. And so um, when I was growing up, I, I, I spent a lot of time growing up in Latoka and, and I was kind of left alone a lot as a child and so myself and my younger brother, uh, we decided, like most kids to do, to just play around with a little bit of arson, you know, as a kid, like that was healthy to do. And so there was an empty lot next to our house, and it was pretty dry. It was just before kind of the rainy season, and there was a whole bunch of that kind of tussock grass, and we thought, well, what, hey, let's just, let's just kick around with some matches, right? And so we took some matches, and it was really fun because you'd stand there, and the tussock was like that, and you'd sort of light the end of it, and it would go, blah, 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 blah. And you would like, eh, it's fun, you know, and they would light another one, and they would light another one. We were there for hours, just lighting little fires, and it was just so much fun to do. And, uh, but eventually, we had one fire, we started to light, and it was like that. And then it sort of hit the base, and then a couple other embers kind of sparked out. And of course, lo and behold, we realized actually we couldn't put out that fire anymore. 
And I started to panic a little bit by this stage because I was the elder brother in this situation and the more responsible one. And I started to freak out. There was an empty section right next to our house, and there was houses on the other side. And, and so I did what everybody else should do. I figured out we need an alibi. As eight years old, I figured that out. I'm so thankful I love Jesus now, and he found me because I don't know where I'd be if I knew as an eight-year-old kid I needed an alibi. An alibi is basically a reason not to be there if the police come and ask. And so I decided to send my brother, quick, we can't put out this fire. Let's go home. And so we went home and I thought, that's it, Monopoly. Let's open a game of Monopoly because that's what we were playing the whole time. And so we get a game of Monopoly. And I even thought through the fact that don't just start the game because that's obvious for the police. You clearly just start. And our ash-laden hands, we started to hand out the cards. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of a game of Monopoly. So if the police ever ask, I'm like, what, what fire? I don't know, we're just here, a couple of kids just left by themselves just playing Monopoly in the middle of the day. Well, there's a raging inferno next door to our house. And so I remember that story very clearly. And I remember thinking what I needed to do to cover up that story, to make sure that nobody ever knew. In fact, to this day, I'm sure my parents don't even know that I actually did this. Remember the fire engines, Dad, back in 84? That was me. You should be so proud of your son. But I had an alibi, Dad. I covered it all up, dusted away all the tracks, and still I live with this, and it haunts me to this day that I raised the whole... Anyway, I figured I was just clearing it for the people that were going to build a house on top of it, so we need to clear the land, and that's what we did. Just like you would do with sugar cane, you would burn it all down, and that's what I did. So. But the question is, are we really being honest with ourselves? Like, are we really... Are there little things in our life that we go, actually, the devil's kind of stolen this from me, but actually, I kind of, I'm going to find a way to cover that up because actually, I don't really like that part of me. You see, the funny thing about fire is that you can only kind of control it so far. And I reckon every time we live with things in our life that we don't deal with, it's like the devil lights a little fire because I don't think we're going to get home today and find our family kidnapped. I don't think we're going to get home today and find our house burnt to the ground. Probably nobody here is going to go home and deal with that type of situation. And in the West, we kind of read these verses and go, well, that doesn't happen to people like us. But I think the devil's a lot more subtle about how he outworks it. Because I think he probably just likes to light those little fires too. And I think he lights a little fire. You see, every time. Let me read some scripture for you. Because on the Sermon on the Mount, it's just one of Jesus' greatest sermons. And this is his kind of first sort of really active public ministry where he's been around, he starts to do some things and some miracles, and all of a sudden people start hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, is this the Messiah, and they start meeting uh, at this place. And, and so let me read some things that are these little fires, because if you start thinking that actually that's not me, then I think, we start, then I think maybe that's another little fire that the enemy wants to light in your life. Oh, that's, a, that's another person. This is going to be a really good message for my friend. You know, the friend that needs to hear it that you're recording for right now, and you play it back and you go, this is for me the whole time. That's the laughter I talk about. And so here, Matthew 5, we'll go through a few of these verses, verse 22. But I say, uh, even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. I can be a little angry with my kids sometimes, and I can be a little short with them, and I'll sort of, I'll raise my voice and realize, well, where did that come from? I don't want to be that kind of person because my boys know, hey, Dad, you just talked about anger on Sunday, and yet here you are. You see, they're sneaky now because they're getting older and they understand a few things. And they'll use it against me now in the right way. Dad, you can't be one person there and be a different person at home. 
Verse 23, so if you're presenting a sacrifice and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to that person. I can remember sitting about here and my good friend Stu Shutt, who I don't know if is here, called him out now, was sitting about there and I had to lead a service here on the Auckland campus many years ago. And before the service started, uh, Stu and I had a conversation that we were both getting upset about. And I remember saying, well, you didn't do, 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 do. And he said, well, you didn't do, 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 do. And it was kind of this kind of conversation. And we were laughing and smiling because we were a church and we are putting on our nothing's on fire face. <laughs> I said, keep smiling, Stu, keep smiling. You're an elder in the church. And, and then we sort of had this moment. And then we're sitting there, of course, then the praise started. And they said, lift your hands. And Stu and I are lifting our hands. Like this. And Stu's looking over at me and... And then the worship came on, and I suddenly realized I remember verses like this, and I thought, no, I can't get up on stage and talk about the love of God if I've still got beef with the person sitting there on the front row. And I remember going, walking across to him and going, come on, let's hug it out. Come on, I'm sorry. And we hugged it out, and all of a sudden, I just felt that weight come off. And it's a funny story, but it's real. And then I remember getting up on the stage, and Jesus saying, good, that's what I... And all of a sudden, there's a freedom... Because I was reconciled with that person. I didn't allow, as Pastor Bruce talks about, I didn't allow the pancake to sit on the plate. I ate the pancake right there and then. Clean slate again. Nothing builds up. When you're on the way to court, verse 25, settle your differences quickly. We need to settle our differences with people. Another fire. But I say anybody who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's right. It usually goes quiet when we talk about this stuff because these are little fires. This turns into a big fire for so many people. But little fires start like this. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Again, if we simply do, so the Roman soldiers would expect that as a Jew, you would carry their gear for one mile. That's what you had to kind of do. So a Roman soldier would go, I'm tired now, grab the nearest Jew, pick up my bag, take all my gear, and you sort of have to just deal with it. And Jesus is saying, I realize you have to deal with it, but instead of doing one mile, just go another mile. And so the Roman soldier is looking at you and you're like, I'll take it another mile. And you keep walking on. It's doing more than, more than is expected of you. Isn't it interesting that actually I think the devil can steal those kinds of things from us. If you go to your job and you go, well, I'm doing 100% of my job. That's what you get paid for. That's, that is the job. That's why you get money, to do 100% of your job. But when you start doing 101%, that's when even as followers of Jesus, that we've got to go above and beyond with this stuff. We've got to do more. We've got to continue to get there early or late or whatever that looks like. And we've got to actually do more than everybody else is doing. But I say to you, love your enemies. Even that, love your enemies, exclamation mark. Pray for those who persecute you. Like how? How? People have wronged you and they've hurt you. And the first thing we want to do is to go, but they, Jesus, you don't know what they've done to me. He says, I know everything about that situation. But he said, I'm asking you to go and pray for them. Any husbands know this? You've got to be the first person to say sorry. That's how you lead your family. Get over it. I'm the best person doing that. No, me, I was an idiot. I'm so sorry. And then few years ago, no, I was sorry. We go, oh, sorry. So, oh, hug it out. Deal with the pancakes on the plate. But every time we don't do that, there's a little fire that appears in our life. Give your gifts in private, Matthew 6, and your father who sees everything will reward you. Don't talk about, well, look at me, look at me. I'm, I do a lot for charity, by the way. Did you know that? Did you know when the last time you posted and you go, man, helped out of this place, served there? Oh, man, such a good person. Who are you telling? Like, who's, who are you telling? Hey, everybody. My brother posts about running all the time. 
all the time. I want to put up online, I didn't know you ran. Really? Did you, do you do ultra marathons? I never knew. Because every day you post about the fact that he runs all the time. Jesus says, God, be reconciled to that person. Listen to this one. If you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. I mean, that's a clangor. If we don't forgive, God says, well, hey, I've got an issue with that. I've got a real beef with forgiveness. And he says to me, Jake, remember all the stuff that you've done? Yes, I remember every single moment. Remember the fires that you lit? I forgave all those things. So he says, so you can't, you're saying you can't do that for somebody else? Don't store up treasures in heaven. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow brings its own worries. The, the only thing I think we should concern ourselves with, not with respect to worry, but is actually we should concern ourselves with the fact that there's a whole bunch of people that don't know Jesus. Like, if I'm going to concern my mind with anything, I don't use the word worry, but if, I can, if, I, if I'm thinking about and meditating on something, it's the fact that there's a whole bunch of my family, as of today, that don't know Jesus. Like, that's got to be a big issue for us. That's got to be a big deal. Matthew 7, don't judge others and you won't be judged. It goes on and on and on about the little fires. And so here's the thing, we come back to the field. See, what does it look like for us? It's, it, I think it plays out where you say things like, Ah, uh, someone says talk about serving. I know I probably should, but I might just, uh, I'll give myself a year and then I'll. Or a Sunday, I know, but this time I'll, I'll, I'll make it next Sunday. Or e-group, Emma, who spoke so articulately about e-group. Oh, sorry, Emma, the classic Tuesday text. I'll turn up next week. Had a busy day. Had a lot on. I just wonder whether, whether we say these kinds of things and a little fire gets lit. Again, you may say, oh, Jake, just relax a little bit, man. Don't be too militant about this stuff. But I just wonder how much we kind of aren't having those kinds of conversations. What are the things that we're not worrying about? What are the things that we're not crying over? What if you were there, you turned up to e-group, and your friend turned up, and they're going, hey, where's my friend? Because this happens in church all the time. Where's so-and-so? Because I, had, I chatted to them last week, and I'm looking for them this week. And so these kind of things kind of play out in my mind. And again, we recognize that the devil comes and does nothing more to steal and kill and destroy. And he wants to light these little fires in your life. And every time we don't deal with things, it's like I'm standing in the middle of that field and I'm lighting another fire. And if we don't start to learn how to dampen those hot spots in our life, you see, we can stand there and we can think, oh, if I don't forgive or I'll get around to doing those things. It's like in the corner of the field, we see the little flames and we go, well, they're never going to hit me here. Like I'm in the middle of the field. But eventually the, the flame will start to spread. Eventually you'll get to a place where you can't put it out. And then we have these kind of moments where we go, man, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought I'd arrive in that place. And so what I love about David is David, David inquires of the Lord. Isn't that cool? He's in a low situation. He's, he's at a place where he's wept until he can weep no more. And yet David still says, Lord, what should I do? Should I go after them? Now, again, it's so easy for us to get into that place and go, well, of course I'm going to do that. But all throughout the Bible, there's times where they pursue, there's times when they stay, there's times when, and again, there's, it's up to Jesus, up to God to kind of go, well, no, this time I want you to do this. There's not a pattern to it, but it's about us inquiring of the Lord. And we read in, in verse 6, David, that verse, he strengthens himself in the Lord. But then he pursues, he says, shall I pursue this truth? 
Shall I overtake them? He answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. We read that in 1 Samuel 30, verse 8. So just as we kind of close, I want to just give you three people in the Bible that, that pursued Jesus. And maybe, Steve, if you're around, you can come up. That'd be awesome. Thank you. The first one is Zacchaeus. So I love the story of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, if you remember the story, we kind of read it in Luke 19. He's the chief tax collector of the region. So he's the chief, most hated person in that region. Now, tax collectors obviously collected tax from their own people. But most tax collectors actually didn't draw a salary. So they had, they had no salary. But what the Roman soldier would say is, oh, just take whatever you want. So this is why so the system kind of encouraged them to go, well, I'm not getting paid and I'm in this job and I'm hated by everybody and I've got to have protection all the time. My life is kind of always in some sort of danger unless I'm protected by the Romans. And so what they would do is they would simply cream a little bit off the top and they would take their own salary. And as that became a little bit easier, they realized, gosh, actually no one's going to do anything about it. And so Zacchaeus, I don't know what Zacchaeus, I don't know when he got to that point where he thought, I'm going to do this. Maybe he figured... I'm good with numbers. Maybe he just thought, well, actually, numbers work for me and I understand them well and I'm not earning anything and I can do this stuff well. So maybe he goes to the Romans and says, I can be a tax collector for you. They go, you're good with numbers? He goes, I'm good with numbers. They give him a couple of Roman soldiers to sort of stand guard by him and all of a sudden he does it, goes up the ranks and he realizes, man, I'm really good at this. And maybe for the first time, weirdly, Zacchaeus actually gets a bit of identity from it and goes, I'm like, I'm someone here. Like I'm actually someone. I'm, I'm, actually a, I'm actually a person in this town that people actually respect. They maybe don't look up to me, but they respect me. And all of a sudden, when Zacchaeus makes this kind of decisions, it's like he's lighting a fire and he's realizing, actually, no, you're robbing your own people. The first time he does it, I don't know whether he looks there and he goes, actually, I see the numbers and I go, and the guy says, how much do I have to pay? And he says, 100 denarii or something. And he goes, give me 110. And the guy looks at him and he goes, Zacchaeus, bro, like we were raised together. You live next to me. I know your family. And Zacchaeus is like, bro, we've all got to make a living, man. Next, takes the extra 10, skims his mate. Like, I don't know how it worked, but I reckon Zacchaeus might have been a good guy. I think there was something in him that was decent about him. And he becomes a chief tax. And all of a sudden, he's in the system of the Romans. are probably saying, no, nah, you're in it now. You chose to make these decisions. And there's going to be consequences to them. And then... He hears, like, he hears this Jesus of Nazareth is coming to his town. Now, when, when, when important people came to these villages, the more important the person was, the more people would go out to meet them. The further out, kilometers they would come and they would walk with them into town. And, and Jesus was an important person in that day because people wanted to see him. And then Jesus is now kind of, and, and, and Zacchaeus goes, I've got to see this guy. So something about him maybe thought, man, I've just been haunted by these decisions and the enemy has stolen so much from me. And, 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 and it's almost like he runs out of the house and the Roman soldiers are like, Zacchaeus, what are you doing? And he's like, forget it. It's not worth it. None of this stuff is worth it. And he runs ahead and the mob sees him. They go, there's Zacchaeus. He's got no protection. Scampers up a tree. Maybe they're trying to get him. And all of a sudden there's a moment where Jesus is there and he sees him and he says, Zacchaeus. And he knows his name. And something in Zacchaeus must have just leapt that day because so much was stolen from him. So much was robbed from him. And yet Jesus, he's like, he says, I see your pain. I know your story. He says, come down. And what does he do? The very thing that broke so much protocol. He says, come, I want to eat at your house today. 
Now the whole village knew Zacchaeus. The whole village knew if you were eating with someone in their house, it's kind of like you accepted them and you thought they were okay. You would never hang out with people like that because it means that you were in codes with them. And yet he chose Zacchaeus. He said, I'm coming to your house. And all of a sudden it's like Jesus says, no, I'm going to start to put out those fires. But it took Zacchaeus to actually pursue. Zacchaeus could have stayed in his home and looked out the window and gone, oh man. See, for so many of us, we can kind of look out the window and see people's stories and go, oh, that's really cool. That's great. I've got gifts I should if I did if I had the courage to if I had the confidence to do yeah Zacchaeus all of a sudden risks his own life because he wants to meet Jesus the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 this is the most beautiful story I think in the whole Bible a woman who again had five husbands and was living with a person who a sixth who wasn't her husband comes out in the heat of the day when nobody else was going out why? because she was ashamed and embarrassed and no one was hanging out with her shunned by the village that she lived in she comes out, she's drawing water, and then Jesus, who's a man, rabbi, talks to her. Now, what I love about this is they argue that maybe she didn't pursue Jesus, kind of Jesus pursued her. But I'm like, well, Jesus opened up the conversation. He says, would you pour me some water? And she goes, why are you talking to me? Man, I think if she, in the day, she probably would have just put her veil more over her face and gone, actually, I'm not going to even have a conversation with you. This is dangerous for me. I don't know who you are. And she probably would have normally just drew her water and, and just left and thought, what a weird thing to do for that guy. But all of a sudden, I think there's something about Jesus. She looked in his piercing eyes and she realized when he looks at her, he looks at her different to everybody else. Isn't that cool about Jesus? He sees us and he sees us as different. He doesn't look as Jake, the arsonist who's eight years old. He sees me as Jake who's been reconciled back to Christ. He sees me as Jake who maybe the devil stole a whole bunch of stuff from me, but actually he sees Jake as the one who pursued him and all of a sudden Jesus is like, I can work with that guy. Jake, I can fix all that stuff. See, she says, it's, it's like the Samaritan woman, it's like for the first time someone's actually hearing her. Someone's listening to her. Over the summer holidays, See, Pastor Helen and, I, and my, I brought my niece and none of my family's really saved and my niece hung out with us for a couple of days and we had a meal and Pastor Helen and Bruce were there and, and I can still remember this moment where my little niece, Melody, who's seven years old and Pastor Helen does the thing that she normally does. Come here, sweetheart, come sit on my knee. Just gave her a big cuddle, never met her in her life. And I just thought, I think that's what Jesus does, Helen. Like he just said, hey, come here. Come here, we'll figure it out. And you go, oh, Jesus, I no, no, no. And he's like, no, no, I'm not a hugger, Jesus. No, I am, no. We'll figure it out together. And he, draw, and he listens and he sees people. He sees people. And then the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8, 12 years walking around the town, unclean, 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 unclean. That's what she had to shout. She was unclean for 12 years. In Luke's translation of this, there's three translations in Luke's. It says she gave all her money. She spent every single penny she had at the doctors to try and figure this whole thing out. She's basically saying, I would give everything to help. I don't know what I've done. I don't know why I've arrived in this place. You see, for many, you maybe feel like, well, Jake, stuff's been handed to me. You don't understand my parents. You don't understand my background and where I'm from. And I'm like, well, you can relate to this woman then. Doesn't talk about anything that she did that was wrong. We just read the fact that for 12 years she had this problem which made her unclean, which means that no intimacy, I don't know, possibly no children, no relationships, no touch, no embrace, 
And again, her life was literally on fire. And yet what does she do? She breaks all protocol and custom. She takes a risk on Jesus. He's walking through. There's people everywhere. She would never go to those environments, just like Zacchaeus would never go to those environments, just like the Samaritan woman would never go to those environments. None of these three people were ever around people like we are today. And yet she pursues Jesus because there's just something about Jesus. There's something about the way that Jesus looks at people. There's something about the way that Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you've done. All that matters is this moment. Jesus says, you're healed. Imagine hearing those words. 12 years. I don't know what you've suffered and how long you've suffered for. But I know that when Jesus was raised to the dead, the Bible says that we were resurrected with Him. That resurrection power of the cross lives in us, which means that Jesus can resurrect any situation. Nothing is too hard for Him. Nothing is too far gone for Him. So, just to finish... Here's, here's what I don't want you to do. Sometimes I hear this kind of language of, that's it. I'm going to kick the devil in the teeth. And maybe we've said this in the past. I'm going to go after the devil. I'm like, don't go after him. Don't go after him. Go after Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. He's the one that writes the story. See, in Matthew 6, 3, what do we read? Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, all these little fires that the enemy's trying to light in your life that you may or may not have opened the door to, all of these little things, seek first the kingdom and all of these things will be added unto you. It's like every time we go back to God, every time we continue to pursue God, just like David said, it's like, it's like God's putting out these little fires. Another hot spot over there. Another hot spot over there. Another hot spot over there. Let me deal with that thing. Let me deal with that thing. I'll deal with that thing. He fights our battles for us when we pursue Him. He goes after our enemies. He's the one that wins. You don't do it by going after the devil, trying to attack him. He knows the Bible better than you do. Sometimes he's wily, he's crafty, he's sneaky, and we don't have to give him much time. I know one day we're going to look back and go, that's what we were afraid of. That's it. But right now, focus on God. Continue to pursue God. Sometimes we've got to run through the flames back of our own life. Sometimes we've got to run through, and sometimes we've got to be a bit brave. And this morning, I want you to be a bit brave. I don't want this just to be kind of inspiration, but I need this to be revelation for people. It's revelation to me. Because I've had to sometimes turn around. When you repent of things, what are you, you're changing your mind and you're turning around. And sometimes you've actually got to walk back through the situation and give it back to God. And we go, I don't want to touch that anymore. And God says, no. But for the sake of healing sometimes, you've actually got to talk about that. And you're thinking, I don't want to relive that. It's not reliving it. It's about actually dealing with these hotspots in your life. Because that fire will only grow. Maybe it's a relational fire, a financial fire. Maybe it's, I don't want to be reconciled to that person. Maybe it's a fire of forgiveness. And it's something that's grown up. And you're saying, well, Jake, 90% is good enough. Most of the areas in my life I'm pretty cool with. But Jesus says He's not the God of 90 or 95. He's the God of more than enough. He has everything that you need. So Psalm 33 says this, 23 to 24, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. So this morning, I want you to ask Him to direct my steps, God. Tell me where I need to tread. Tell me where I need to go first. He delights in every detail of your lives. But He loves you. He loves every single thing about you. 
He loves your character. He formed you. He created you. And though they stumble, they will never fall for the Lord holds them by His hand. Just like it took Peter to step out of the boat. He was the one that said, I'm going to do this. And what happens? He takes his eyes off Jesus and Jesus is still there with his hand. Hey, grab my hand. And you're like, you're still here. Though I fail, though I stumble, I'll not utterly be cast down as another translation of that verse. Isn't he good, friends?